Let's Roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for all things Kings of War. as they delve into the world of Mantica and bring you in-depth coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Cam's Charge. I'm Matt Croger. I'm Ken Ferris. I'm Jeff Holland. I'm Steve Hildry. And I'm Ralph Enough, and welcome to another episode of Counter Charge. This is the third episode in a series of how to run a tournament type of shows, and we're really excited to have the, the guys from Down Under join us to talk about their amazing scene down in Australia. So welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Let's start around the room by giving us a little bit of an introduction of who you are. Let's start with Matt. Uh, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm Matt. I run Clash of Kings Australia um, here. And uh, so, which happens at our biggest tabletop convention at, at CanCon, uh, which people travel from all over the country for. And uh, this year's been a bit different, but typically I would run most of our other tournaments in my local region too, which might be about six a year. So, yeah, I'd, I tend to do six or seven tournaments a year. Um, most of our others, uh, our Clash of Kings is two days, but most of our other tournaments are just are just one-day affairs and we'll get people... I mean, Australia, the population's pretty spread out, so we'll get people travel a few hours uh, just for the one-day tournament. I kind of fell into being a, a TO, I guess. We had our first Clash of Clash of Kings or our, our first run of Kings of War at, at CanCon, and then the TO after that uh, didn't want to do it the following year, and um, I think I was the last person <laughs> standing uh, in terms of putting my hand up, and, so, and then it just went from there. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate you. Ken, give us a little bit of background on Ken. Hey guys, I'm Ken Ferris. I run the Australian Masters and Fortunes of War, the campaign-based tourney we have the day before the Masters, and I do all that Masters background work as well. I'm not running any other events. I live in Sydney, so Matt was in Canberra. I live in Sydney. I'm not running anything else in Sydney. I haven't for the last 80 months, two years or so, just because of real life. Um, but I still try to make sure I can do all the Masters and Fortunes work. And that's always interesting because these tournaments move around across Australia. And so I'm trying to run tournaments that are somewhere between 500 and 1,000 kilometers away from where I live, which isn't always easy. And that's something we really want to touch on. Obviously, we joke about the UK, the distances that we have to drive or travel to get to our events. But you guys take distances to, a, to an extreme. Let's talk to Jeff. Hey, guys. Um, I'm Jeff Holland. I run Convic, which is our only two-day tournament here in Victoria. It's an escalating tournament with three different points levels. So we'll play two games on the Saturday, to another two games at a different point on the Saturday, and then three on the Sunday. I haven't been a big war gamer. Um, I only got into Kings of War, I think, about three years ago, and I co-run it with uh, a friend of mine, AG, and he got me into the game, and I love it. I have ever since. We've covered UK tournaments. We've picked apart US tournaments. But this episode, we are going down under to, to look at the growing Australian tournament scene. We're really grateful to you guys joining us to, to give the listeners an idea of the, the time zone spread here. Rob is up at 7 a.m. Uh, it's lunchtime for me, and it's 10 p.m. for our friends in Australia. So we're really grateful for you guys taking, taking the time. Um, we've invited some of the brightest lights in the in the Aussie tournament scene to talk about what goes into running tournaments in a in a, a territory like Australia. So we've covered a bit of um, 
what tournaments you guys cover. So let's go into the what tournaments. So let's talk about tournament names and themes. Do you think names matter so much? We talked a bit in the UK. The UK tournament team doesn't quite have the thematic element of um, the US tournaments. We talked a lot in the US tournaments about how it's more about their brand. So when they start building tournaments, they go with a brand um, and they build kind of reputation based on that brand. And then people will go to the tournaments from all over the US based on what they are. Um, do you think that's similar in Australia? Do, you know, do, do brands matter? Do you keep the name every time? Or is it just based on you're so spread out that this happens to be the tournament that's next to me? I think for tournament attendance, it depends on what's next to you most of the time. The two, I guess the three biggest named tournaments are probably run by the three of us who are here today. Myself with Fortunes, Matt obviously running Clash of Kings, our biggest tournament in Australia, and then Jeff running Convict with the Escalating. The Queensland scene, they run a few different points and they do things differently because they have a bit of a bigger player group as well. But from what I can tell, it's not as big of a deal as it is in the US on running themes. I think most people are just happy to have something they can get to and roll some dice at. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I think we we have the few big name tournaments, but then, you know, the other twenty or so that I've run have all generally had different names. Last year we kept them similar here in Canberra having one, two, three, four, five, but that was because we ran the tournaments as a as a series with a with a prize at the end. But generally I don't I don't think it matters. And here in Victoria, um, the majority of the one day tournaments are run by a great bloke called Mike Crossman. Uh, and it all started with Mike on one, two, three, and it got to the point where we just couldn't remember what number it was. So now he just has names that are just a little bit funny, like, for example, Brocktober. Uh, we're worried that everyone is going to bring Brocks, Brocks, and more Brocks, but the names don't seem to matter too much. We talked. You talked a little bit before about the the preference for one day tournaments, even though you've got the the territory. And one of the things we talked about in the US was the fact that two day tournaments are so popular just because they travel so far. So if you're doing a twelve hour drive. You're not necessarily going to do that for a one-day tournament, but it sounds as that's not quite the the same in Australia. Is that right? Talk to me about kind of the two-day versus one-day split over there. Look, I think generally the preference has been for one days, even though travelling, and that's probably mostly the the demographic demographic of the of the group that's uh, generally playing regularly. I mean, so to give you guys an idea, I I don't know what the current population is, but somewhere around 26 million in Australia. So you know that summer's that's as is the population in you know some of the US states, um, so it's really spread out. And I think you know a lot of people tend to drive a few hours, and then and then we only have those few big named tournaments a year. So that's when people will make the effort to to go that extra um, to go that extra distance and stay for the whole weekend. Essentially, every state has one two day tournament, and after that, one day is from there. And then the demands on people who are going to travel is really to you know, make it to Canberra, Brisbane, Sydney or Melbourne once through the year to get to that two-day event. And most of the one day then are primarily for locals, although every now and then people will travel if they just happen to be in the neighbourhood. Does it work similarly with ranking points the way it does in the UK? So I don't know what your, how your ranking system is organised, but it seems to be a pretty similar size to the UK ranking in terms of player base, whereby if you go to two or three two-day tournaments, you just get a colossally huge number of ranking points compared to one days. Is your system more balanced? The biggest influence on the ranking points is the size of the tournament. So the one-day or two-day doesn't really matter. The number of rounds, I think it's got to be four to, to make a difference, but four or seven doesn't really matter. It's just how many people attend. So 
a one-day four-game tourney that gets 25 people in Melbourne would be worth more than the two-day event that had only 15 players in it in Sydney or Newcastle, for example. So the number of players is the most important factor in, in our, our rankings. And, and yeah, so um, on that, I guess, because Clash of Kings is so significantly bigger than anything else, that, that will have the biggest impact on the rankings for the whole year. And for people who are competitive in the rankings and wanting to do well, the Clash of Kings is pretty much you can't miss it. I know that some people, if they want to try and get in, say, the top 10 for Masters and stuff, CanCon is on their calendar a year out in advance. Your truth be told, I don't really think many people are going to these events just to, to make Masters or that sort of stuff. And I know that's easy for me to say because... I happen to have won CanCon and I got the 400 points for that event, but <laughs> it, it's, it's easy for me to say, but it, it's maybe that's something that's different to the UK or the, the US scenes, but traveling to make masters is generally not, is seen as a bonus, but not a, a huge deal from my perspective as the TO. I don't really think people go crazy and uh, traveling and attend tournaments just to try and make it. I think it's interesting because, um, I think it is a lot more competitive, for example, in the UK, where people genuinely will think, well, I need to go to this tournament, otherwise I'm not going to make Masters. And it's kind of interesting, we've got an interesting split here, because the top two players, and actually several of the top 16, because we have 16 in our Masters, won't be at Clash of Kings. But like you, Clash of Kings is three times bigger than the closest tournament in terms of numbers. So if you come 20th in Clash of Kings you're going to get more points than coming first at most other tournaments. So it becomes kind of a big deal if you are bothered about that. But it sounds as if that's not so much a concern for guys over there. It's that what you're saying. No, I mean, in Australia, we have those big two-day events in each state are all auto-qualifiers for the Masters. So if you can't travel, but you, you can win that event in your state, you'll still make it in, even if you only make one tournament a year. So... I mean, and I like that better because if you can big the biggest, you win the biggest tournament in your state. You know, good luck to you. If you want to travel and accumulate points, that's awesome as well. Uh, the only awkward part is when I auto qualify for my own masters. <laughs> is it just because Jeff Trace yeah. is going to win anyway, and everyone else is just oh, it doesn't matter then? But, well. You know, I would have played him in the next round and my Tracy is actually my most regular opponent and he plays me most than anyone else on the table. And I used to say that I'd win 20% of the time against him. That number's probably down to less than 5% of the time now. So my easiest games when I go to tournaments, people don't believe me, but I lose probably 80, 85% of the games I play. And Ken also didn't me- mention how many times he was a bridesmaid at Clash of Kings before actually getting the chocolate. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a lot. In terms of your two-day events, I guess a relatively limited number of two days if it's one of the kind of the main population centres. You mentioned seven games. Do you go to a seven-game limit in, in two-day tournaments? You do four and a three? We did for the first few years of Clash of Kings, and then uh, I changed that last year. We went down to six. The thing about Clash of Kings is that it takes place in the the middle of summer in Australia and basically what is a giant tin shed with really dodgy aircon, And, you know, that can get to 40 degrees Celsius or, or higher here, which is, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's pretty bloody hot. And so it's yeah, hotter inside than out. Yeah, true. Yeah. So the atmosphere can get pretty thick and the, the stench pretty great. So um, uh, the seven games were starting to take a toll on a few people, so we agreed to drop. <laughs> it sounds like you're, int- you're kind of introducing a, an endurance element to your two-day tournaments that's not perhaps there in other territories. Yeah. 
Well, I did like that, but then last year I think I personally had to buy. I bought 150 bottles of water that I gave out throughout <laughs> throughout the tournament. You know, and that's with us down to six games. Yeah, interesting. You talk about down to six games because the conversation here is tend to be two days. Let's do a five game because at the end of the day, six games is only really worth it, I suppose, in terms of the separation at the top of the table. If you've got over, say, 40 players, right? Seven games sounds pretty extreme. You're going to get some heavy separation. At the end of game five, somebody could be well ahead. But I guess if you're, if you're not doing as many tournaments, then actually getting as many games as possible might also be the attraction, right? Yeah, that's Absolutely. kind of how we run uh, Convict to a point. So my, um, my co-TO, uh, AG, uh, a good definition for him would be a power gamer. Uh, for example, we did the 24-hour international campaign one time um, and he just wanted to keep playing whilst I was definitely ready for bed. Um, but with with ours having the seven games, um, so this year we had two games at 1,500, uh, two games at 1,995 and um, three games at, I think, 2,150. So we weren't playing the same size games, hence why we had more on the Saturday because they were shorter, sharper games and smaller points. I think because everyone's so far, what you said is true. Like if people are travelling we want to play, we run Fortunes of War on the Saturday and Masters on the Sunday and each one is four games on the day. So that's eight games, 2,000 points on one weekend. Wow. I think that that's, that's definitely an endurance event, especially if you're doing it in the heat. Tell me about points levels, because it sounds as if there's a bigger variety over there. And you, is escalation kind of much more of a, a thing over there? And I'm, I'm really interested to hear about the campaign element of Fortunes of War as well. Talk to me about points, because we, you know, the standard in the UK is 2,000. The standard in the US is 2,250. So if you have a tournament, it's actually it's relatively rare to have a split-level tournament because it makes it, I think, more complex for people. Is that something that you guys have just kind of grown yourself and there's just a, a, an enjoyment amongst the playing population of testing out different styles of play at your different list levels? Um, oh, I well, think the escalation is primarily in Jeff's, in Jeff's court. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the escalation um, for Convict, um, it's, it's trying to almost be a little bit of a point of difference um, and that the idea of you might run a great 2000 point list and you might say have a really strong elite army but that army at 1500 might play very different so you need to learn how to play it differently but the victorian scene in general um i would say there's no set points um so mike crossman runs about a tournament maybe once every six weeks or so and one one tournament will be um 2500 the next one will be 1750 uh, there's no there's no set points really here in Victoria uh, for what we'd say is the stock standard for tournaments. That would be the same for for my one day as we just vary it all the time. Uh, sometimes we throw it out there for what people want, and sometimes I'll just decide what what we're going to do. Um, I think Jeff down in um, down in Victoria recently, Mike's run quite a few lower points levels, hasn't he, to make it a bit newbie friendly. Um, and that seems to have really got a lot of people in through the door. Yeah, the lower points, um, I mean, that's how I even started playing the game. And it's one of those things, if you play lower points, you don't need as much painted up, all that as well. So you generally see armies that are probably closer to fully painted um, because you don't have as many models. And, yeah, it's it's that um, new player friendly because Mike, Mike always sweetens the deal if, 
it's your first mic on, uh, you get an actual full army box from him. So those lower points games definitely got a lot of new people in the door. And the interesting thing is up at Queensland, they've run 3,000, 3,500 point tournaments as well when they've got more experienced players. So while 2,000 to 2,500 most common, we get all sorts of points and sizes. And you've seen a, a relatively rapid increase in your scene over the last year to kind of year and a half, haven't you? I listen to a direct misfire a lot and, you know, they talk a lot about how the scene has been growing and kind of, and the build up for version three is kind of some really big hopes about getting even bigger. So it sounds as if you guys have actually focused on bringing newer players in with some of those lower pointed tournaments. I think it really depends on the region. The Mike and the guys in Melbourne at the moment, they're having a huge increase in their numbers Sydney's probably going the other way where we're going backwards and we're getting smaller numbers. Um, Queensland, I think, has gone down a little bit as well because their, their TOs have had to move around a bit. And then Canberra, I think, with Matt has gone up again. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's totally right. I think it's just the region. But but certainly um, you know, on the various Facebook groups, I think with version 3 popping up, we're seeing a few new names coming in and posting a bit. So you know, I'm pretty positive about what um, third, third can bring. So talk to me a little bit about the the campaign element of Fortunes of War. That's that's something that I'm. I know Rob is is really interested in kind of a story led uh, tournaments. Previously, we've all been focused on you know winning at all costs and getting into masters, blah blah blah. What's the what's the campaign um, games at Fortunes of War? This is the pre masters tournament, right? Yes. So we're running eight games. We've got people traveling for masters. We there's the potential that they play each other on the Saturday and then the Sunday. So we want to make it different, but there used to be a Warhammer tournament back in the day, sort of early 2000s here in, in Sydney, Australia, where it was it was done as a campaign of, you know, good versus evil, everyone divided up and, you know, had all, all these different extra conditions. And I basically replicated that for Kings of War. Once I saw that Destiny of Keys, King supplement come out, the it had the, the tree um, campaign in it. So I basically took those scenarios, put a couple of modifications on them to make it work, and then basically there would be conditions if good or evil winning that would affect everybody's game. And it would it'd be basically Swiss chess ranked with the top evil playing the top good and so on down the list. So you're still playing someone about the same you know, standard as you like you would in a normal tournament, but it's all the goods versus all the evils. And then there's a little extra, I guess, layer on top we do an army order, so it's, it's almost like a little paper, scissors, rot thing where the the good side and the evil side will submit an order of attack, defend, or flank. And if you get the right setup, then every good army, if you good was to win it, gets a bonus in the next game. Um, it, it, and that's a way you can sort of, you know, if the campaign bonuses going down the tree start to get too strong, then that might send it back the other way as well. But it also means that then the the conditions of any game are different for any Masters players that play each other. But that's not really the focus. The, the focus really is it means each good side and each evil side they have to get together as a team. They have to make some decisions together. Whether you're on the top table or the bottom table, your result in your game matters. So it's just like Fortunes of War is, I believe, the least competitive tournament on the entire tournament scene. And... I also sit there and, you know, write a ridiculous story about the, you know, to link all the games and I get everybody to come up and they've got to, you know, they've got to read out lines and before each round and just that sort of stuff as well. Um, it, it's 
by far my favourite tourney. Uh, it's a lot of work to run it and play in it, but it's definitely my favourite tourney, and I'm pretty sure everybody who attends you know, really enjoys playing it as well. Honestly, I think this is a genius idea because actually pre the day before Masters is almost it's the perfect time to run it, isn't it? Because at that point, no one really cares about ranking points. Even the most competitive gamer is like, well, Masters is the big deal and that's tomorrow. So actually, you've got all the gamers in the location already. It's almost like the perfect time to do that. So all that competitive stuff goes out the window and it's just time to actually play the game and have fun. It, absolutely. It's got that element to it. And the other really good thing about it is like that tournament moves around from state to state because I'm running it the day before the Masters. But what it means is for any new players or local players, the best players uh, theoretically in the country are at the event too, and they're all divided up and they're on the same team. So we get our experienced players talking to brand new people and they're telling them about do this on your army, do this thing this way. They're helping with tactics and it really sort of works to get, you know, really, I guess a really good link between players on the, on the day of, players from your local scene interacting with players who are, are really experienced, but they're trying to, everyone's trying to help each other out as well. So yeah, I really like it for that aspect probably as much as anything else. And, you know, most people who go to fortunes sort of, you know, take a real leap in how they build armies and, and how they're sort of implementing tactics on a table from their army list design, because they've actually been able to sit down with somebody who's given them the time to really, you know, take them through it. Plus, I mean, you always learn far more going from your local scene to a big tournament because you see a bunch of things you've never seen before. So, yeah, it, it, but it really helps that by doing it in a team aspect as well. So, yeah, I think it's great. The the player packs on, you know, if the player packs on Facebook and stuff, but anyone can just email me if you want to have a look at it. It's, it's not rocket science. It, it's pretty straightforward, and it's just up to how much effort do you put into the narrative of the event as well. I think this is a great... Perhaps if you, if you could um, point us towards it, we can put a link to the player pack in the show notes, but... Rob, do you think do you think the US scene will go for this? You know, we have you've this year um, both the US and the UK Masters have got a like a, an also runs tournament running simultaneously with Masters. But actually, encouraging players to come and play with Masters players in in a kind of a story led tournament when it almost it doesn't matter because the ranking points aren't important. That that sounds like a, a winner to me. What do you reckon, Rob? I agree, hundred percent. I think that it does a couple things. One is it does do what you just said, which is the people that are are already locked in. They're there. This is just a way to kind of maybe release a little energy before the big the big day. The next in, in Australia's case, the next day. Um, but also in the U.S., what I'm finding is there's people that are reaching out that say, "Look, we really don't care about the Masters. We're not competitive, and this is an outlet for for some of those players. And so you can reach a wider audience that we may not be catch, capturing with you know with regular competitive play. I mean, I think it's similar in vain into what you can catch with team events or doubles events as well where you can bring in people that may not be overly competitive and, and just give them a new way to play kings of war so any way we can get new players is, is awesome i mean i don't know about the scene in in the uk or us obviously but the i think the other strength of it is that when players come they realize that the, these you know masters players from interstate or whatever they're just playing kings of war like it's not it's not really all that competitive. They just don't make mistakes as much as the normal person does. That's the only difference. Like, you know, you, I, you know, I lose more games than I, I win. Like most Masters players still lose a bunch and they don't really care about it. They just want to play and they just, you know, they've either got a really good list design or they don't make mistakes on the table. Like it's, um, it's a good way for people to see that this image of super competitive gaming is not what we have here. Oh man, I'm moving to Australia. It's, it just sounds friendlier. It sounds like. So, do you 
think are doubles and teams tournaments more prevalent there? Do you have any doubles events in that kind of uh, situation, or is the population not quite big enough to support that yet? For doubles, um, the only negative that we had with the doubles really were um, some people. You've obviously you've got to find a partner um, to play with, uh, and then also potentially using other people's armies or that sort of thing. Yeah, but I think um, before too, Steve, it was from the outside, uh, looking from the outside, I, I would say that generally probably we are a, a less competitive scene overall. Is uh, We don't seem to have some of the uh, so some of the problems of things needing to get nerfed quite as hard uh, in this in this country as, as uh, you guys seem to have pop up in the UK and the US. I think maybe that came from things like the War Machine and the, and the Warhammer scenes where because they were so large um and people like to win um maybe that's in the u.s people really like to win that they will then you know they'll min max it they'll 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 play the meta and so you will find people with 200 shot goblin armies despite the fact it's no fun to play against sometimes just because you know that 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 is a bit a bit of that power gaming element isn't it but actually you know at the end of the day we're all here to 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 roll dice and have fun and i think that that sounds like a, a friendlier mix I mean, we can't pretend yeah. that there aren't people taking those lists in Australia. Like, there, there's a couple of people taking lists like that. But the way I'd put it is that the people here in Australia are not super competitive win at all costs. They're just really good at winning. You know, Dref Chase takes what everybody agrees is the weakest list at every tournament and wins 90% of them because he plays a scenario. And if you take your mega three drag and fly around thing, you don't have enough unit strength to beat him. And... Those people get humbled and then they go away and play a proper army. And that's really the, you know, and there's a bunch of us now who try to emulate that style of play because that's the most successful way to win the game. And that puts a dent in people who want to play that way, you know. So we do get a, a mega shooting army or something like that every every now and then, but it's it's not as, I guess it's not as dominant and therefore doesn't ruin people's day in the same way. He's like the counterweight, isn't he, to the competitive scene in the, yeah, fine, you can bring your broken list, but I'll still win. How about that? And that kind of, it's actually quite nice in some ways. Oh, absolutely. And to, and to watch him play is amazing. Like, he, he, sometimes he doesn't even look like he's thinking about the game, to be honest, and then all of a sudden you've lost. <laughs> quite frankly, it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> we, we talked to Adam Padley a little while. He's the current UK master. And he took a hideous... Going. Adam's actually a lovely bloke, and he's an exceptionally good player. And at last year's Masters, which he won, the only game he lost was against Dan King. And Dan was playing an army that couldn't beat Adam's army. So what he did, he played the scenario, just the kind of the same way that Jeff would, and he won. He beat him just through playing the scenario. So it is, it is perfectly feasible to beat broken lists. You just need to be that kind of player, I guess, which works. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people coming from, I guess, Warhammer to Kings of War, they don't play the scenario. They're not used to it. Whereas people coming from maybe War Machine, those sort of games, they're far more used to playing scenario. Someone you know, who's been playing as long as, you know, Tracy, myself and that, we're trying to play all of those things. And I think Tracy plays scenario better than anyone else I've, I've ever seen. And again, he comes up against those hideous lists. At Clash of Kings last year, where he, he came second and he had the third lowest um, attrition points of the 50 odd players, and he came second because he basically had losing scenario victories the whole way through the tournament. Yeah, it's, it's almost impossible to pull off, but that's what he does. 
Well, enough about Trace. We've we've heard enough about him. He's uh, he's fully interviewed on Jeremy's uh, <laughs> fire. Let's focus back on the tournaments. So, do you do things like special characters? So, some of you know, with the variety of scenes we have in the UK and the US, there's a lot of uh, TOs try to make their tournaments special by adding in special characters, monsters, or individuals. Do you have that in Australia? Um, do you think it's a good idea? What, uh, tell me a bit, a bit about the uh, Australian scene in terms of uh, the special character element. Look, most of our tournaments are pretty vanilla, I think. We tend to play them straight out of the book, um, except for maybe varying the points. Um, I really like the idea of special characters and things, but for myself, it's just uh, never really having the willpower to put my brain to making sure that that would play all right. Um, but I do have in mind that I'd like to steal some of the the US or the UK tournament packs sometime and just, just run them here. I know Ken Dunford's run it in Queensland. They've run that style of tournament at least once, possibly twice before. Uh, they had the benefit of having a relatively experienced group of you know 20 to 30 guys who were showing up at that point in time. But, yeah, it's not something that's really been able to be pulled off often. Um, you know, we sort of just haven't had the, the right mix. But I, I dare say 12 months in the third edition, that's something that could definitely get off the ground in Canberra and Melbourne at least. Awesome. What about um, so scenarios? Do you just go with um, the vanilla scenarios from the book? Are there, do you feel there's scenarios that don't play well at tournaments? Are there any that are kind of um, must-haves? Do you always put them in? What kind of restrictions do you impose? And do you go for special scenarios? Or it sounds as if you just kind of go from the book because the scene is still relatively young. Mostly from the book. Um, some tournaments will actually dictate scenario before the event, just for especially for new players, so they, they can kind of prepare and know what they're doing. Um, but generally, they're, I mean, they're modified for Fortunes of War to, to follow that if good are winning or if evil are winning. Otherwise, people are running scenarios from the book. They're, they're all good. Um, I know we avoided that terrain one last year because nobody liked that, and I think nobody really likes Kill because it's not really a scenario, but outside of that, Everything in the book's fine. We find that dominate and invade play really easy and control um, because it's pretty well defined. Um, generally, with our like the newer players when they come, they struggle with the high loot tokens, so like scavenge or raise or anything like that, where you've got to pick things up at different times and all that. Um, sometimes those can be problematic. Um, I know that when we look at convict. Uh, we make sure that we mix up uh, the scenarios. So we might have, say, two loot ones. We might have two location-based ones, and then we might have two um, objective-type token ones. So we mix it up that way. Yeah, and so and for my tournament to still be out of the book, and um, generally Mike down in Victoria too usually gets me to pick his scenarios just in case he's playing, whereas I don't often play in mine. And so I just try and mix it up usually and usually have a – for um, both their end and here, a mix of some of the older scenarios and then some of the new ones and just provide variety. But I pretty much always leave kill out. Um, not, not, I think the experienced players can sometimes have a bit of fun with that, but sometimes it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a killjoy for the, for the new guys. I suppose also if, you, if you're running um, six and seven game tournaments, rinsing through uh, quite a substantial number of the scenarios, so actually you know, you're always going to get a good mix because you, you're having to use so many of them, right? Have any of you ever run special scenarios? I suppose Fortunes is slightly different because you're running... Do you still run with scenarios from the book in Fortunes of War or is it kind of special design scenarios for the actual, for the story? I'm running the same scenarios as the book so players know what to expect and then there's slight modifications. So instead of randomly placing tokens 
if evil are winning, then evil might place all the tokens before rolling sides, and then they might win rolls for you know the roller for first turn ties, yeah, that sort of stuff. So we don't have you don't want it to be a dramatic difference for either side, otherwise it just turns into a romp for one side or the other. But you're not really modifying the main scenarios too much so that people know how to play them and know what what to do. In the last round of Convict, we always have a special. It's not as much a scenario. It's more of a points bonus sort of thing uh, where you and your opponents nominate one of their units and that's worth double attrition points. So you could nominate a little, um, say, more beast pack and double that points or you could nominate their dragon and instead of getting 300 attrition points, you get 600. And even those little modifications definitely affect how people play the game. Uh, so, for example, if you pick their big, big heavy-hitting unit, all of a sudden, instead of them charging in, they might hold it for an extra turn or something like that. So that's the only um, thing that we really have in Victoria. Right, and that's a way of... We, we've talked about before about these kind of small tournament points or attrition point modifiers. Actually, it's a way of uh, altering the game and putting a bit more strategy into it without necessarily unbalancing the scenario. So you can have, like, for example tournament objectives like uh, a tournament i went to recently had a it was a standard scenario but it added something called kill the general so you nominated one of your models was the general um and you got an extra three tournament points if you managed to kill that off so rather than 20 or 21 points there was a potential 23 or 24 for killing that extra model and that's kind of a nice way of giving people something extra to go for because also if you're just losing if you're looking at the scenario and you're thinking i am absolutely losing this and there's no way i'm going to win what you can do is focus on your small objectives or your tournament objectives to kind of get those few extra points it's kind of a nice way to go so let's talk about scoring systems so we know australia is the home the the home of blackjack and we, we'd hope that kenan could join us today to talk about it but can any of you talk a little bit about where blackjack came from what was the kind of ethos in designing it and and describe kind of what was the the principles in, that come up in, uh, in designing blackjack as a system? Yeah, so I was um, on the team of I guess four that were involved with it, um, but realistically, it was yeah, it was Ken that that was the the brains, and then um, and then another guy, Chris Kellahan, who you might see on the various Facebook pages, who was a bit more of the the maths behind it. We originally came up with it. Basically, it was pre, I think it was pre whatever Clash of Kings brought unit strength in. And so one of the reasons was for kind of trying to encourage people to get more models on the table. We were seeing some really highly elite lists. Um, so it was a way of creating a little bit of bias there. Um, but also, we had a bit of a scene where we had some very experienced players who were really good. Um, and then, you know, a gap to the rest. And so it was a way of giving players two avenues um, towards keeping points. Um, so if you felt behind, you could either try and save some attrition points or you could just play for scenario points, as well as trying to, once again, um, make scenario king in the game. Um, so uh, that, that was probably the main, the, the main ethos behind it all. And we kind of wanted to keep it... Um, essentially a zero-sum scoring system uh, as well. Um, draws don't end up that way, but essentially we wanted to wanted to keep that. Yeah, and it's, it's, it, it focuses, isn't it? Blackjack, um, it really incentivizes the scenario, doesn't it? And, and it seems that that's had an effect on how people are playing 
in Australia in tournaments. Uh, do any other scoring systems get a look in, or is it pretty much 100% blackjack these days? We used to run a couple of others, you know, the 0 to 20, mainly attrition-based, but the game's a scenario game. It's supposed to be played as a scenario game, so, you know, I dare say we tried to make scenarios great again. Yeah, and, and, and so I think pretty much everywhere does use, I know Victoria use it now, um, Queensland use it most of the time, so almost all. You know, even though I'm part of Blackjack, I actually don't believe we should have one scoring system. I quite like a little bit of variety. So, you know, I don't think there's a problem. I'd play out of the book, the 20 nil system at times if, if, if we wanted. But it certainly seems to have been, you know, the case that that's primarily what's, what's played here now. I think there was a couple of TOs, sort of new TOs in smaller areas that were a bit intimidated by it. They thought it was really complicated, but... Yeah, all we just need is for people to have a look at it and realise that it's actually quite straightforward. And when you've got the blackjack system and you've got the triple T scoring software, it, it's really never been easier to be a TO and run an event than it is now. Like everything is there for you, and it's super easy to use. Um, you know, I've I've said to Matt before, I think you should play in CanCon, even though it's got sixty odd players, because people can enter their own scores and everything's done beforehand. But he's he's too good a bloke to do that. He wants to get us all a drink of water. Talk to me about the triple T software. I've not. I'm, you know, I'm not a TO, hands up, despite the fact I'm comparing these TO podcasts. Um, a lot of people um, over here use Warscore, and I think in the US they, they do as well, even though our spreadsheets. What's Triple T? Is that a homebrew piece of software? Is it something that's on the, on the web? Yeah, so that's, um, it's designed by a guy here in Canberra who um, we ran into at our local gaming store. Um, so for anyone that wants it, and I guess you can link this, Steve, but it's um, just tabletop.to. It was originally designed for X-Wing, um, and so we just tapped him on the shoulder and said, look, can you, could we get some upgrades to the software to allow us to use it? The beauty of it is it's web-based. It used to struggle with the big tournaments, but he upgraded it, and so pretty much uh, anyone can submit their own results, and they do that, and all their opponent has to do is verify it, and then all the work for, for the TO is done, essentially, and it's you know, it does randomization. It'll randomize the tables for you. You can run a series of tournaments in it. It it pretty much does everything. You can link all your player packs under the event and websites and things. You can do announcements on it. it it's really a great piece of software. Well, wow, so actually players, they're not like filling in scoring sheets. They're actually everyone's submitting it online at the same time during the tournament. Is that how it works? Absolutely. So I often still provide scoring sheets just for those people. You still find someone that doesn't have a phone or the internet for some reason, but uh, otherwise they just, yeah, I could, you can run it off any device basically that has, that has access to the internet. So everyone just does it themselves. Um, and um, the guy, the guy that owns it is, is super agreeable. So every time we've had, you know, something we want to consider getting done, he's, he's open to it. Um, if blackjack continues as a thing in third where, you know, where we might have some discussions about whether, we can somehow tweak it so there's not so much, you know, working out what the splits are, and um, he'll be open to that as well. He's even got a setup on it where when I'm running fortunes, I can, you know, I can put half the guys as good and half the guys as evil and divide them up, and it does all the draws and everything for us. Like, you can do anything. You can put in club affiliations, and then club members or people in the same state don't play each other in the first couple of rounds. Like, it's really, really good and really, really simple. Rob, do you think this would is something that you would trust players to do in the US? If you've got like a sixty to eighty player tournament, everyone entering their own scores on our on their own phones? 
Well, I believe the 40K scene here in the U.S. uses a, an app called Best Coast Pairings, and that's what they're doing. So I, I think it's fine. I think I think for us, like with Best Coast Pairings, it's not set up for Kings of War. So if this other app is available and it can accommodate the scoring that we're doing in Kings of War, I think we would totally use it. So even when people are entering scores, so like I said, they have to each opponent has to verify each other's, so there's no dodginess that goes on. And as a TO, you can sit there and it color codes what's been, what's gone in, what's still pending. So where only one person has done it and the other person hasn't verified it and what, what hasn't been done yet. So you just, you can just scan through and filter it. And then, you know, if someone hasn't done it, you just run up and tap them on the shoulder. Like it's, it's amazing. I've tried War Score before and, you know, I found this so much easier. And as, as far as I'm concerned, if, if the players can spell their own name, they can probably use tabletop. It single-handedly allows um, TOs to play. Like the software is so easy, so intuitive that when you are playing, if at the end of the round you spend two minutes, you can make sure the whole round's good and you've already done the next round. It it's honestly it's a two-minute thing at the end. If that. Well, this could be a revolution. Well, who knew? So, while we're talking about scoring systems, let's let's talk briefly about soft scores. So. I believe that similar to the UK, the you know the overwhelming majority of your tournaments are battle only for determining who wins. Is that correct? Absolutely, absolutely. There is essentially maybe other scenes are different, but there is no need for the other scores. I think for painting, painting should have the biggest price. Painting should get the lion's share of attention, but rewarding the person who can paint the best for the battle results in people spending big money on getting professional paint armies. And we saw that happen with the Warhammer scene many years ago. And that's not really what we want to encourage. We want to encourage new people to paint their stuff and get on the table and play a game. The number one thing I'd say is that you want every person when they enter an event to believe they have just as much chance as everybody else. And when you've got paint scores in, that stops happening. You know, you incentivize by giving rewards for the people who do really well and also incentivize people who maybe rock up with a new painted army for the first time and things like that. And then for sports scores, sports scores leads to bad sportsmanship, not good sportsmanship in my 20 plus history of gaming where people snipe each other and become bad sports. TOs need to take a lead to tap people on the shoulder when they're doing the wrong thing. We've really had to do that here in Australia. There also shouldn't be an incentive on, you know, the people with the best versus the worst social skills being the most glamorous players running around. Like everyone's an adult, rock up, play properly, don't be a dick. That's the culture here. I mean, I think this is a cultural thing, right? So we've talked at great length about, about, about soft scores because the UK is really similar, right? It's just everyone wants to just play and you want it to be determined on your skill, not whether you happen to be amazing at putting a paintbrush to things. And I think the, the counterpoint from the US, and Rob can, can contradict me here if I'm misrepresenting, is that they want to represent kind of all parts of the hobby. Um, it, it's far more of that kind of like, well, you know, you know, being able to paint like, you know, Leonardo da Vinci shouldn't necessarily win you a tournament. What you can have is a capped rubric for painting, whereby what you don't want to be facing is a sea of grey plastic, right? What you want is like a three-colour minimum. People have tried certain things. And what they found by doing that is that it's really kind of supercharged the hobby element of that. So people are really striving to produce the most beautiful painted army they can because it might give them, you know, a small amount of, of extra scores. And the way they uh, talked about it was like, a maximum of one game. So if you're on a six-game tournament, then um, a few extra points could tip the balance between the two kind of most elite players. Is that is that right, Rob? Yeah, I mean, pretty much in the U.S., generally speaking, um, we give 
awards for all three categories, right? So uh, best battle or best general, which is who did the best on the table, best painted, uh, and then a sportsmanship award as well. And then a lot of events, not all events, but a lot of events will give what's called the best overall, which will be a blend of those. It's hard to encapsulate it all in one little snapshot. And in fact, the episode we released this morning does a much better job to explain those things. But we just found in general that it makes more well-rounded players. I was just yeah. going to jump in there. The, the two the two issues, I guess, in Australian scene for that is that one, we're in a bit of a beggars can't be choosers for players and cutting people out on the painting and having them then not attend is not something in our best interest. We don't really have a problem with people taking a couple of months to get up to standard and painting. And then, and and I'm just uh, I'm just dead against people not being on an even keel when they start the tournament, which is what happens with painting scores. For sports, I am just super against sports scores. Basically, I could tell you now the worst game of Kings of War I ever had was a 21 nil win to me. And if sports scores would have existed, he would have sniped me and I would have been disadvantaged for him looking at my list at the start of the game and saying, I can't beat this list and throwing a tantrum on the other side of the table. Any system that rewards that kind of behavior has some pretty big holes in it, in my opinion. I think that's on the TO. Over here, we do a pretty good job of making sure you separate the player from the list. Yeah, Ken, Ken made a very good point that we can't really be too picky and choosy because um, we just want people to play. Uh, this year, we actually changed the convict painting scores. In the past, there was quite formalised. There was about, I think it was worth 20 points worth of painting. Um, so our units highlighted, that was worth one to four, and we actually got someone to come in and judge it. This year instead, though, uh, what it was with the three different points limits, um, you could get five points or zero points if your army was fully painted. So we just encourage people to have fully painted armies to the point where we actually, if people didn't have armies, they could borrow off other people. And every single army at the tournament was fully painted. And that that was fantastic to see. And I mean, we do have a bit of a luxury here in Victoria that some of our bigger players have several armies. Um, we're talking like some of the players have seven, eight or nine different armies that they're n- normally happy to lend to others so we we've never worried about sports schools or anything like that at convict and the the painting award is generally something that um we we are trying to get away from that concept of for better words upsetting people if they get a poor paint score um but yeah it is a nice thing seeing painted models on the table at clash of kings we do a we do an all or nothing as well so I can't remember what I ran it last year, but it was 10 points or something and it was all or nothing. And I think we only had two people um, miss out, one of one of who, which was one of my best mates who I had to dock him the 10 points and it cost him a top five finish. So <laughs> most people will turn up with a with a painted army. And we don't do sports scores there. We just we just do an award. To be fair, that that is a that essentially is a soft score. It's a it's a heavily capped soft score. But what you're saying is, you know, if your army is fully painted, you get a contribution to your tournament point. So that is kind of a, a nascent kind of like soft score that's in there. And like you say, the intention is because we like to see painted armies and I would always prefer to, to play across from a painted army. And I think maybe you're right. It's just the size of the scene. And the reason you can probably do that at Convict is because it's so massive that people want to be there. So they will make that extra effort. But like if you're running in a small area and typically one days don't tend to have 
that paint score element quite as heavy because like you say what you want is players to turn up if you can incentivize it great and the us scene is just that slightly bigger environment where they want to push it a little bit further and they have the luxury of being able to do so ultimately what what i found is that you do what the players want if you're in an area where they're more um geared towards just battle then our events in the u.s that's what we're going to give them if they're in an area where it's more um hobby focused we're going to give you uh, an event with more contribution coming from your paint score. Because ultimately, uh, the TO's job is to put butts in the seats and to, grow, and to grow the scene, right? So we'll do whatever that whatever that takes to, to, to happen. Awesome. So let's talk about terrain, because I think terrain can, it, it can make a tournament really special. And we've seen some really beautiful terrain layouts. But if you run a bigger tournament, it could be pretty challenging to get to the right amount. So... What are some tricks that you guys uh, have used to getting up to a decent amount of terrain? Do you use store terrain? Do you think the quality of that can kind of detract from the enjoyment? Um, where do you guys go uh, in terms of terrain? It, it depends where the event's running. Um, so for Clash of Kings, we rely on people bringing terrain, basically. Um, so last year, I made 10 tables um, worth of terrain um, before the event, and um, I now keep that, and that gets me through most of my one-dayers. And we get people then to volunteer the rest and I just coordinate it before. So we, we end up, we typically use, uh, well, certainly for Clash of Kings and I think, um, you know, a lot of other tournaments use the Epic Dwarf maps. Um, <clears throat> and so we just, I know exactly how much terrain I need and, and um, everyone chips in and we get it done. Matt, Matt's such a good bloke that he probably doesn't know that he's providing terrain for Fortunes and Masters yet, but he will be because it's in camera. So thanks, Matt. <laughs> No worries. Those ten, those ten tables in my uh, storeroom have to do something. <laughs> we're um, we're fortunate enough in Convict that we've got a long-standing relationship with a lawn bulbs club who store all of our gear. Um, so we've had over over a hundred players at a Convict before in past games, um, and so there's just terrain there, heaps and heaps of it. Uh, what we've been trying to do each year is there's quite a lot of people in Victoria that have um, like the mouse pad type gaming mats and they're very popular because obviously the dice don't go on forever. Um, and basically each year I'll try and 3D print about two or three tables worth of terrain and quite often that actually becomes the the prizes. So this year uh, the terrain was first, second, third prize sort of thing and we try and match it up but sometimes some of our tournaments uh, in Victoria, we just use the store terrain and that can be problematic when you have one giant building in the way but or when you have no building in the way sort of thing. Um, when it comes to that, it's just a bit of a uh, luck to see what you've got. But for, um, for Convict, we've got heaps and heaps of terrain that there's no real issue with it. I think 3D printing is the is is creating a bit of a wave at the moment. I'm doing it for fortunes and masters myself. You know, every player is going to walk away with a wall personalised for the event, and you start making buildings as terrain pieces for you know table prizes, all that sort of stuff as well. And then the onus is really on you know having some having some woods, and that's it. Um, it's never been easier to produce quality terrain these days to bring to events as well, and obviously. They're then the right size, rather than having those ridiculously huge um, buildings that you know block out two foot across sometimes and that sort of stuff. But you have to use it because you don't have anything else. I think using some of the terrain as prizes is awesome because then you get some of the 
a memento almost of the event. You've played on that and you've won at that event. You get to take a bit of the event away. I've not seen that elsewhere. I think that's really cool. It does get, I guess, a bit pricey after a while. You have to keep printing it off, right? Well, I mean, if, if you, if you're, in my case, my father and his next door neighbor own five 3D printers now because they're retired and they're just going crazy. Um, so where I'm, you know, that full wizard tower that's personalized as Kings of War Master is first place. And then there's a building on for every other player coming as well. It's, yeah, it's something, as you say, it's a memento of the event. It's personalized for it. It went down really, really well last year. And I shamelessly stole this from Jeff and AG because I saw them do it at Convict and said, that's it, I'm doing that from now on. I think it'll just become more common. And the actual cost of making it the, is not too too bad at all. Uh, with anything 3D printing, the main issue is time. Um because, like, if if you set it up, you can, okay, say if it's a 24-hour print and you set it up going overnight, yeah, that's fantastic if it works. Otherwise, you've just wasted a night and things do go wrong. Um, it's a little bit of a fine art. Um, I remember one time Matt bought this amazing, lovely machine and it didn't necessarily <laughs> go to plan, Matt, I believe. No, no, we have a... We have a four and a half thousand dollar machine that when uh, none of me or the other owners can use at the moment. <laughs> it worked for a little while. I got one set of trophies out, um, which unfortunately two weren't as good as I wanted. <laughs> then it's done jack all and just sits in a garage waiting for someone to to sweet talk it and figure it figure out how to get it printing uh, printing again. I can subconsciously feel in the back of my head tournament organizers around the world kind of scribbling frantic notes about printing off special prizes as terrain i know for you know with the 3d printing as well i'll be making you know line of sight arcs that are six inches long on a flat side as well for the new rules with the new auras and stuff and every single one is going to be personalized for masters with the the rank of the person coming into the event and fortunes everyone will have one that says I was good or I was evil at the event as well. Like you can just start producing stuff as, as Jeff said, as long as you're able to set up overnight, I've tried to make this wizard towers 36 hour print. It took four goes to get it right. So my son's got two slightly wonky wizard towers with all of his little bushy toys that he got from Coles to play with at the moment. But you know, to get the right one and you look at it, you just go, wow, that's awesome. I think that's amazing. I, I, we saw something similar. So there was a bunch of uh, the US masters. They got like um, a little set of stairs to use to prop units up on hills. So everyone got their own um, masters version of that. And I think this is just kind of supercharging that. I think that's fantastic. So how do you guys see the UK and the US scene? Obviously, you might have listened to the UK, the US uh, scene podcast only released today. But what differences, main differences, do you see between your, you know, the Aussie scene and, and these scenes? Is there anything you'd like to steal from them, um, apart from all the notes that I've made about stealing stuff from your scene? Oh, well, we certainly wouldn't steal your players, Steve and Rob. You know, we've obviously got better players here. How rude. How rude. <laughs> hey, I, to be honest with you, though, I mean, Jeff, Jeff's winning the, the, the UB tournament, so I mean, we can't really say anything. Right, exactly. You can yeah. steal our puppy players. There you go. How about that? Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. well, we might take one or two of them. Um, in all seriousness, though, I, I would like to, at some stage, steal some of the themed um you know, scenarios or character stuff that's particularly run in the US. I, I think that's a great idea, and I know some of the guys there put a lot of effort into it, so I, I would definitely like to run more of that. The thing I'd like to steal more than anything else is just the numbers. I think that our top 
our top sort of 10 to 20 players, um, particularly our, our really top players, um, you know, Clint and AG, along with Tracy and that, I think we could compete in any tournament anywhere in the world, you know, at a team's event and be fantastic. But we're just so far away and we just don't have the numbers overall. So that's the main thing I'd, I'd like to steal. And I guess the difference I see is that we see comments on Facebook and the forums and stuff about, you know, super competitive events and the super list charge that people do. We don't really see that very much here in Australia. So that's so we talk about differences. That's the difference that I see. It's not an issue in Australia like it has been noted to be in the UK or the US. So they're the main differences I see. But to be fair, I don't listen to podcasts very often and I get to read as much as I'd like to read either. So I'm not necessarily as clued in as much as I'd like to be. You're completely right, Ken. One of the things that we hear is uh, the, the concept of broken lists. Then a Clash of Kings comes out and it's all. sometimes it almost sounds as if that's been changed due to lists that have been run. So like, for example, Slave Orcs hitting on fives. Um, I know AG loves his Slave Orcs, and when it came out that Slave Orcs now hit on five, he was shattered about it. Um, and he was like, oh, that's because a guy was running f- five hordes of them or whatever. We really don't get the broken lists. Every now and then you'll get someone who will throw in three dragons or whatever. But, yeah, we don't get too many, which is a good thing. Why do you think that is, though, that you guys as players have a little bit more self-restraint? Um, I think there's also been a bit of effort of TOs to tap people on the shoulder with those lists in, in Australia certainly in certain areas. So there, there has been a fair bit of effort by TOs to try and, you know, discourage lists like that. I think also, yeah, there's the tap on the shoulder. There's also the good players. If there's a new person coming up who seems to be pretty good who's playing a list like that, to sort of point out they don't need it. And that pointing out is usually done after they've just lost the game on scenario or, you know, kind of been embarrassed with their three-dragon list failing. And you put those two together and that person generally comes back with a better list and then does better, has a better game and is a better person for a new player ending the event as well. So we can kind of put those different elements together and it's not really a drama. Those lists just don't, they just don't win. It's just, there's something of a cultural thing as well, isn't there? There's, I don't know how to describe it other than saying that it's kind of like a, a good bloke mentality, you know, be a good bloke, eh? Do you know I mean? That kind of mentality whereby... In the US and the UK, that you know that that general culture isn't quite quite as prevalent. Do you think that's something that's? Are you valid? saying there's no good blokes in the US, Steve? Is that <laughs> what you're saying? Wall to wall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that 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 sounded word for word for to me. <laughs> Speaking for the U.S., I, th- I think what you'd find is that generally speaking, we do have folks that have lots of self restraint, but we're a big community, and as a community grows, you know, there's always going to be some. D- to get to the into the bar and maybe the to's haven't done a good enough job is what you guys have said where tap them on the shoulder and say hey dude you don't need that to win the game you know maybe we haven't done enough self-policing i guess is the best way to describe it point you're right with size with size will come you know more issues so and more outliers as well yeah it's the outliers but also it's it's that that's something i've not heard or seen that previously about you know apart from this conversation is people saying you don't need that to win the game. That's actually quite a powerful statement. You know, if you're a good enough player, you don't need to take four chariot hordes and three dragons. You know, surely you're good enough to win without that. And that almost appeals to the pride of the player. You're a good player. Just play well. 
you know, you don't have to win just with your with that kind of a list. And I think that's a message I'd like to see out there a little bit more, actually. Don't get me wrong. It's not like the lists are, are soft either. Like, you know, everyone's taking stuff to win, but it's just not at that extreme min-maxing. Like, the unit strength is king. And that's where we're seeing more and more Scratkin armies in the area get up because taking unit strength and dominating zones is what's winning games here in Australia, not big flying dragons and a chariot horde. Which, again, is a symptom, I, I suppose, a small symptom of your scoring system as well. If you know, if everything is blackjack, people are going to focus on that, and that's where, the way it's going to go. Um, and I think, um, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with version 3 because I think the from our chat with Mount Gilbert, it feels like the armies of Panathor the 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 non-mantic air quoting um armies are going to see a lot more redefinition where they're going to try and make them more mantic so i'm personally as a rakin player interested in seeing about what they're going to do to rakin to move them away from that from that perception that they're just skaven because that is very much how they are okay so we covered that pretty thoroughly so let's um let's have a little bit of a commercial break on the other side we're going to look at the how of tournaments this is Nicholas Lee from Penang, Malaysia, and you're listening to Countercharge. Okay, and we are back. So let's talk a little bit about the how of tournaments, the actual nuts and bolts of organising tournaments in, in the, the wild lands of Australia. So venues can be pretty critical to people enjoying an event. Um, how do you guys find kind of a decent venue for a decent price? Do you go for like hotels? Do you go for game stores? Kind of do you look for location parking? You know, what, what's a popular choice for, uh, in Australia for a venue? Uh, the cheapest one possible. Find a store, find somewhere you can play. I've I've made the joke before that the next time the Masters in Sydney, I'll run it at my house because I could probably fit eight to ten tables here. Like we want to keep the cost down so that price is never a factor in people not coming. Yeah, when we um, where possible, if we have a, a store that's supporting Kings of War, we try to run it at a store. Um, our main store uh, that was selling Kings of War product unfortunately shut down so now we just play out of a gaming club who join in part of them and it's only five bucks um per player for that so it helps keep the the store down so it just varies and then clash of kings is um part of a convention so varies again yeah same here just try and keep it as simple as possible um for convict we've had a long-standing uh relationship with the bowls club but um and Mike runs all these tournaments at House of War because it's close to him and it's pretty easy for people to get to. Do you cater your events? Do you actually, you know, do you provide food? If people come in for a two-day, is there that same kind of social element that we see some of the two days in the UK and the US? People go for drinks on the night and everyone has dinner together. How does that, how do you factor that in? Uh, I think any two-day event and then Fortune's Masters is essentially a two-day event as well. Players are going out that evening. People are going out, getting a drink, getting food. Clash of Kings is a bit different because it's so big that people are off in different groups. But I don't think there's an emphasis on TOs on actually providing food on the day. And we're more likely than anything else to have somebody go and you know run out to a shop and buy stuff for people while they're playing the second round or something like that to um, get through the day to get more games in. Where I run all my tournaments, we've always had catering options. The uh, the store used to be adjoining a pub, so that was that was good. Have a drink and a and a feed at the same time. And then uh, where we play now also has a they have a cafe that opens up while we're there, so they do hot food and and drinks for us as needed. Um, but it's not provided necessarily as part of the tournament. It's just there for players. Do you have a sense? Because I get the impression in in America and. 
I'm guaranteed this is absolutely wrong, but everyone is drunk the entire time they're playing, right? <laughs> That's my, there's this kind of social scene that people are just pissed. <laughs> but, uh, you know, for one day, that definitely isn't the case in the UK. I think during two days, people do drink a little bit more. And I think Clash of Kings, because there's beer in the gaming, gaming venue here, people do tend to have a little drink all, uh, all the way through. Is there that same kind of culture? I just assume in Australia, everyone's drunk most of the time. Is that is that wrong? I mean... It is pretty hot. There's there's drinks being had. I'm going to answer for Jeff's tournament now down at Convict in Melbourne. That bowling club has 1980s beer prices, and it's, I'm, I'm floating through most of that event most of the time, especially because I'm flying in and out. I've got plenty of time to sober up before I have to get home. I, I often can't recall who I've played at that event. Um, otherwise, look, if, if there's drinks at the venue, drinks are being drunk. Um but, you know, number one is to get a venue where we can host everybody and keep the cost down. But I think they're, they're definitely – I don't think they bring attendance on in of themselves, but they're definitely more enjoyable and, and notable to have that around, and it's definitely happening if possible. Yeah, at Convic, um, the fact that you've got a bar there and you've got, you've got your pot glasses, it's, yeah, it's quite a happy atmosphere, especially on the Saturday to the point where even though we've had four games, we'll go to the pub across the road for dinner and then we'll come back and we'll have more. But at MyCon, um, there's a bar there, so everyone will have one or two over the course of the day. Lovely. There used to be a UK tournament called Beers of War, which uh, sadly uh, died a death before I before I joined the scene. But uh, that was a drink-focused tournament, which was apparently <clears throat> had a prize for the most drunk player. So not perhaps the healthiest and most responsible way, but certainly sounded like a good laugh. The sad thing is we've got to make sure that players can get home. Um, and, you know, so there's a little bit of emphasis on a TO to make sure nothing nothing too outrageous happens. You'd hate to see a, an accident or anything like that. But <laughs> generally speaking, as Jeff said, you four games, drinking all day, then we come back and have a teams game with anybody who's left standing to keep playing. Like, that, that's kind of the culture. You've talked about trying to keep the cost down as much as possible. Do you... Do you just PayPal? Do you? How do you manage that transaction? How do you manage sign-ups to your tournaments to make sure that you've got people not dropping out at the last minute just because of uh, trying to keep yourselves uh, in the black, as it were? Uh, I will either use direct deposit or um, pay on the day for the small one-day tournaments. Clash of Kings is run through the convention. Um, sometimes for the one-day event, uh, you can use tabletop to, to sign up and then you can track people down. Um, but the one-day events for me never run at a loss. Um, Clash of Kings always does. Yeah, mostly direct deposit or, or pay on the day. And Things, very um, rarely I'll, I'll, I'll offer bonus points if they pay early. Yeah, I mean, Fortunes and Masters, I've, um, you know, again, you sign up on Triple T, I'll grab cash off the people when I get there. I, I probably go backwards on that, Tony, but that's because I just keep buying stuff for players and printing stuff and making stuff. And and then I, I the trophies are generally um, etched glasses for the event that are labelled and then I go and buy drinks to put in them so that when they win, they get the glass and a drink in it and just, you know, I just need to show more restraint. Yeah, for us, it's just a simple um, register and uh, TTT and then uh, just a bank transfer. Um, and then with with Mike's tournaments, um, as I mentioned, um, all the new players get an army box. So we're – and there's normally like a – we've gone towards like a lucky door prize sort of thing. So – the highest roll, highest roll wins gets the um, gets some of the prizes, um, just to share the love around a little bit, and no one seems too upset by that. Cool. So, do you use um, some of the entry fee 
to, to, to pay for some of those prizes then? Or are, are they sponsorship-based? How do you guys go about tournament uh, prizes and prize support? If there's a, a local store, we'll definitely try and run everything through that local store as a, a way of saying thank you. I have hit up Mantic for the Masters the last two years, and I've gotten some unreal support from them, which I'm eternally grateful for. And they've they've said they're sending me some stuff for this year's Masters, and given how busy they are with third edition coming out, I'm I just said, send me all your old second edition stuff you don't need. Like, I don't really care what it is. I just want to be able to say Manning is sponsoring it. So they've, they've been amazing. And then, you know, when we're producing terrain and producing 3D printed stuff, everything's kind of getting taken off from taking care of through that place as well. So we try and use tournaments to support the local store and the local scene as much as possible. Yeah, I will always return um, all, the, all the fees that aren't being used for hire back in prizes in some way. Like Ken said, if it's at a store, that'll be in store vouchers. Otherwise, it might be cash prizes or I'll buy them. Um, Clash of Kings, we get a lot of sponsorship usually um, from Mantic and from other other suppliers. Um, I'll usually buy some and I, uh, my, uh, I run some through my business as well. Um, and, yeah, we just make it happen. Yeah, we pretty much um, all of our money will go into venue hire, um, and then just making any of the products uh, for the prizes. How do you advertise your tournaments? Obviously, if you're in the Kings of War scene, I guess, local, um, you will pretty much find out about the, the tournaments that's in your region. Do you just use your regional Facebook groups? Um, how do you reach newer players? How do you get people that perhaps aren't aware of the Facebook communities that you already have? Primarily, we just use use Facebook. There used to be a pretty popular forum here in Canberra, but that um, sorry, not in Canberra, in Australia, but that kind of tend to die, so we don't really advertise there anymore. So these days it really is Facebook, and uh, if there's newer players, I guess um, hopefully they usually know someone else and they're being directed directed towards towards those groups. No doubt getting new players in is difficult. I guess the, the biggest impediment for Mantic and Kings of War, um, you know, there's shop fronts for Games Workshop stuff and people walk in and they start playing it. And, you know, Warhammer died and then it's come back with Age of Sigma and there's heaps of people playing it. So there's definitely an advantage. So, But there's so many people with old Warhammer armies running around and if, you you know, you see the old people, you tap on the shoulder, you get them into a new rank-and-file game, Um you just want to try and find those people and get them in and then make people feel welcome in a store when they come up and say, hey, what's what's all these guys on the table? But it's definitely tough. It's the it's the King's War's biggest problem in Australia for sure is getting new players into the game. Do you guys work with, do you have tournament packs? I mean, if everything's on Triple T and people are entering their scores there, the, the need for a tournament pack, I guess, is somewhat reduced. Do you... Do you print your tournament packs? Do you do you have them at all? Yeah, absolutely. We've we've got packs for every event coming out. They're being released on Facebook, being sent around. Um, I mean, you've everyone wants to read exactly what they're walking into and know what's going on, and also delineates what, what's different about the event. The packs usually pretty simple. They don't need to be. You don't need to repeat the rulebook in your player pack. You basically say, we're following these rules. You get your armies here. This is the points. This is the place. Let's go. Um, but, you know, you still got to put a pack out of some description describing what's going on. And some players, when they get a player pack, they'll read through it with a fine-tooth comb and then they'll write their list according to it. So I remember one year um, we had, say, height two hills and height four forests. So... There was a player who wrote his list and designed it so he could put height uh, three and above stuff on that hill so it could see over. Um, but, yeah, so we always apply player packs. 
Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, I think generally, yeah, like Ken said, you don't need to repeat it. So that's the beauty of Kings of War. It's pretty simple. You don't need to tweak a lot of rules in the pack. I mean, my experience of, of writing packs is that most people actually don't read it. So, you know, that is the beauty of Kings is just, it's just, uh, <laughs> you can say it's out of the rule book. You know, the amount of times that, you know, I answer questions that are in a pack and, uh, I, yeah. Sometimes you feel like, why bother? But, but that's why Kings is great, I guess, because it is simple. For, for me, Fortunes and Masters obviously have changes and extras and things that need to be spelled out. So I need to make sure that pack is as good as possible, which is the, the biggest issue I have at the moment. Um, our Masters is on the 30th of November and the 1st of December, and we're running at third edition. So I've got a player pack out that's got all these gaps in it that says, when I know what scenarios we have, I'll let you know. When I know what a normal size game is, I'll put that in. When I know how terrain works, we'll make it clear. So, um, but you don't, you know, after 20 years of gaming, I know that the moment that new edition hits, no one wants to play the old edition anymore. So if I expect people to travel over a thousand kilometers for an event, I need to give them something they want to come to. So we're running a third edition, we're running a blind and and people are going to have very short notice, but it also means the world will be watching what sort of lists our masters produce and what sort of things happen at fortunes of war that, um, that, that work. Yeah. I was going to say that I was really surprised when you first uh, talking, Ken, it sounds like people actually read your tournament packs and a lot of the chat that we had in the U S episode was that, people never read them. And I was like, wow, this is a massive difference between the scene. But it sounds as if it's just uh, more of the kind of, I guess, elite players or the masters players who will read those packs. And actually it's pretty similar that people just uh, tend not to read them until the day, which is fair enough, I suppose. Uh, given Fortunes is a team event, people kind of have to read it to, to make it work. But yeah, otherwise I don't think people read them as much as they should. No, it's read rarely enough that sometimes I wonder whether it's the ability to read, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing about Australian stereotypes here whatsoever. So let's, um, last but not least, let's talk trophies. So you talked about shot glasses. In, do you do you make the trophies? Do you just go for a standard trophy? What, what do you guys go for? Um, I've seen some of the European guys, they go way over the top. There's like giant swords, helmets, all that kind of stuff. Uh, where do you guys fall in the in the trophy kind of a continuum i try and uh change it up for the various tournaments and then but we've got a local laser cutter <laughs> so i'll generally um try and change up what we're doing uh i think last year for clash of kings we had trophies in the shape of crowns so um yeah we'll just vary it yeah and we're the same um so this year this year i went to actual pieces of terrain um and they're fantastic pieces by a company called principal scenery um, in previous years, I've done um, like shield type trophies, uh, and then one year I did uh, dragons or something. I think um, so. Just mixing it up every year. Um, the train, I think the train is a bit of a winner though. Yeah, for fortunes and masters, we've got a perpetual trophy for the masters winner, and then for the events each year, we have a. Um, I, I buy beer mugs that are engraved. Um, with the details of the event on it and where people place for first, second, third, or for fortunes, it's you know most good and most evil, and then second most evil and second goodest, essentially. It's the best one to win. <laughs> yeah. First the worst, second the best. I guess it helps if you have a retired gentleman's 3D printing sweatshop next door to you, right? Yeah, it's 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 a bit concerning, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> 
So, um, do you think we've missed anything? What else goes into making a tournament? Any last words of wisdom from each of you uh, before we wrap up? Um, no, I mean, I think before we started, I, I did declare that I'm pretty short on wisdom. It's, I think just once you've got your tournament locked in, it's push, pushing it. I mean, we make a pretty big effort in Australia not to, and as I know they do in the US and I think in the UK, not to overlap each other. So we all try and um, help each other out in that way. And certainly our big tournaments don't overlap. So, you know, I think it's making sure that you're working together um, as a whole for the scene is probably one of the most important things that we can do because it's not about your individual tournament. Um, you know, the reason I keep turning up for to run Clash of Kings Australia is because I do it for the scene because I think it's important that we're represented at our biggest tabletop convention. Um, so, yeah. And, like, for me, it's just anyone can run a tournament. Um, I have no prior gaming experience before Kings of War. Um, and I've been playing Kings of War for, I think, just over 12 months, and I was already TO at a tournament. And mind you, co-TO, but anyone can run it. With Blackjack and Tabletop, it is honestly a breeze. And also running your own tournament, is it's fun because it means you can add any sort of twist to it that you really want. I'd say the same with the, the technology we have using here at the moment. I used to suck to run a tournament because you'd love it and you'd be having this great time, but you, you were missing out at the same time. You can play, you can run it. It doesn't take you away from the game. It, so it's it's fantastic to run a tournament. And the, the more that are running and the more events, even if you're, you're modest and say, we might only get 10 or 12 players, but you're running it, you're making it, you're contributing to the scene, you see the game grow. And I think there's a, a lot of reward for that around here. And then when everyone kind of works together, and you start to get a bit of a travel basis where people are getting on planes and going back and forth. That, that's what really makes the events just really enjoyable. That's what I look forward to. Awesome. So I have a quick break and then we'll come back and do some shout outs and wrap up the show. This is Paige from Singapore with the YouTube Battle Report channel Newbie Dice. And you're listening to Fan Shen Fan Ji. All right, then let's do some shout outs. So uh, who wants to go first? Jeff? Yeah, um, well, a big shout-out for the Victorian scene has to go to Mike Crossman. He's run so many tournaments. um, And you've also got your direct Misfire Boys for their podcasts. Uh, Big shout-out to uh, my co-TO for Convic uh, is AG. uh, And also a shout-out for the fact that he just got me into Kings of War. So Convic, it's a good, fun tournament, an escalating tournament in Victoria. Obviously, at a bowls club, there's a lot of fun to be had. Very cool. Matt? Um, yeah, so I'll give a shout-out. I mean, King, the Clash of Kings takes a bit of effort from a um, bunch of my friends every year, so thanks to you, all you guys and, and Taz, who always gives me a hand. Um, next Clash of Kings is the, our jan- late January for us. I should have been more prepared for this, so I had an exact date. But January uh, 2020 it will be third edition. Um, yeah, and if you think you're a tough gamer, come to Australia and play in 40-degree heat in our tin shed, and uh, we'll show you a good time. Okay, free water, you know, we'll keep you hydrated. You'll get a friendly pat on the bum from everyone. Um, but come and tough it out with uh, with, with the best. <laughs> what, what more could you ask for? Ken, how about yourself? Oh, exactly. Free bum pats. Who doesn't want that? I had many last year, that's for sure. Um, or this year, I should say, this January. Oh, um, that's good. Well, that's a great out, Ken. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I work hard at it. My... <laughs> Shout-outs, I guess. I'm running Fortunes and Masters in Canberra this year, so my first shout-out has to go to, to Matt and also to Nick Prosser, who is Matt's fellow associate at his club. And poor Nick is doing all this running around for me at the moment, trying to 
you know, because I can't get to venues and talk to the local store and he's doing all that sort of stuff for me. He's probably got no idea what he's in for um, and, until the emails the last two weeks, but I'm really grateful for that. I guess my main shout-out would be we've got third edition coming out, and if you want to get some good games in a third edition and see what's happening, get to Fortunes of War. You will have a great time at Canberra. We'd love to have you there. People who are travelling, I'm trying to get a bit of an accommodation deal going so that we can – you know, cut that cost for people to, all you've got to do is get there essentially. And, you know, it's going to be one of the first big third edition tournaments that, that happen. And then, you know, stick around, watch the masters if you want to, if you're able to on the Sunday, um, all the lists will be released early because it's a masters event and all that kind of stuff as well. The, the interest that comes from overseas and that sort of stuff. But, you know, it's as we've said in this podcast, it's not a super competitive scene. It's just players who don't make mistakes playing Kings of War. So it's going to be really interesting to see how it goes. And um, I'd love to see everybody there and then, you know, get to CanCon and all those big events in Australia after that too. Fantastic. From my point of view, I, I want to shout out to Miss Far as well. I think it's a great podcast, one of my favourites. You know, Benson, Selleck, and, and it seems that Hugh is the new Spoon uh, until Spoon's... Uh, finished having his double one tantrum but i think they're you know they do a really good job and i think perhaps the reason we haven't gone to australia with um counter charge up to now is just because they've covered the scene so well so you know big shout out for them how about you rob anything for me just thanks for coming on we really appreciate it to get the australian perspective we've heard from the uk the us and now australia and i'm excited about the next one ultimately we give the tournaments that the players want in our areas i think that's you know i think our tournaments are just a reflection of the player base no i agree all right, until next time, keep countercharging. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at countercharge15. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.